0: Talking Theater with Sir Hole with Felix Smooth, the only podcast on Earth about the theater. The old Adalja reads, "Dying is easy, come is hard." That is, of course, unless you are my second cousin, Peter, who put his foot through his own roof whilst trying to fix the television aerial, and trapping himself was pecked to his demise in a matter of hours, ironically, by a murder of crows. That, my dear friends is a hard death, and any lovey who tries to pretend tackling and presenting a frame farce or the Shakespeare slapstick is more difficult ought not to just be lambasted for their callousness, but they should be made to go to dear Peter's grave and beg for his forgiveness. It matters not to me how pithy a phrase should be taken, and I take the charge that the phrase is in of itself supposed to be taken lightly and with the frivolity with which it is delivered. Nevertheless, there is nothing funny about dear Peter's face being pecked so swiftly and furiously he was unrecognisable. Indeed, the crows had even eaten his teeth, meaning he could never be officially identified. Was it? Was it actually? Maybe it wasn't Peter. Well, nevertheless, Peter or not, there is no com de play or film harder than that. That is with the exception of an incontinent matinee in a provincial town, which is bloody hard, I can tell you. I mean, have you tried delivering a pie to someone's face in a punchline while Gladys is pissing a knickers in the front row? Now that, that, my dears, is murder. Good day. My name is Hole with Felix De Smooth and butter my asshole, we're back for series two of this Talking Theatre. The only podcast on earth about the theatre. That's right, we've been commissioned for another series of insights, instruction, and on occasions, intimacy. And do you know what? I'm glad we have. I mean, I have to admit that coming into your ears so frequently last year wasn't just refreshing for me. I'd go as far to say it was a pleasure. So, naturally, I was delighted when Jason, my next-door neighbour, said he was happy for us to continue to use his back shed to record the podcast. In his words, in those <laughs> immortal words, go ahead, Holworth, I don't care. Just don't touch the dead rat. I'm saving it. Which, when you think about it, rarely puts things into perspective. We're doing something important here. And do you know what? You are too by listening. It's just, it's a lazier kind of importance for you. We're like a symbiotic animal. My partner Sean and I are much like the water buffalo, experienced, strong, and as in Sean's case, quite hairy, and you little ones out there are like the flies that flit about our eyeballs, sucking the blood, catching a lift, and gaining more knowledge about the professional screen and stage from us. Like flies, you can also be very annoying, especially when you write in with stupid questions, or tell me that I've made a factual error, or that I'm being offensive. Be under no illusion, you little flies. I don't mind the odd suckle from one of my eyeball capillaries, but if you write in with a load of what I would call fucking shit, then I'm quite happy to swish my buffalo tail and bat you into the mud before bringing my hoof down onto you to crush you utterly. Sean and I did once actually consider getting a water buffalo for the uh, menagerie that we have. Actually, uh, it's beautiful, magnificent beasts, but uh, alas, like cows, their joints prohibit them from going downstairs. And we do bathe all the animals in the upstairs bathroom. It's um, it's a corner bath, so it's easier to get the asses of the bigger pets in. Um, and uh, and that's why we take them upstairs, uh, and and that alone. And of course we can we can join them too, you know. Uh just dipping the feet in and um bits. We did consider getting a reinforced Stannister lift, uh, for the buffalo, but when the company suggested that the actual balustrade itself would need to be reinforced to take the weight of this what is a vast land mammal, uh we just we thought, Oh, it's too much work and, and we decided against it and we got two gerbils instead. We call them Anton Deck <laughs> after the um after the um, after the um, after the um, after the um singers. So anyway, here we are with Two, and I'm delighted to say it focuses primarily on Jean. Now, Jean is, of course, my Moldavian hairdresser, and a lovely man he is too. Uh, I mean, his quick back and sides for £3.50 and pence is a bargain at that. But, of course, the Jean I'm talking about relates to the categorisation of films and plays. So, we'll be taking a look into all sorts of different areas, from Kande to tragedy, from Hurrah to pantomime all the while looking into their origins, saying how they fit into the industry today, and for the Bunning students out there, uh, how you can get into them, physically get into the genre. I mean, it sounds almost preposterous, doesn't it? But people do do it. We will, of course, make an exception in terms of uh, talking about how to get into the genre when it comes to the episode of pornography, which, to be fair, it should be fairly clear how you uh, uh, get ahead uh, in that. Several, in fact. Um, So, with anyway, without further ado, I give you Series 2. That rhymes, Sean. Uh, well done, good writing. Um, he looks over the script. Uh, here we go, Series 2, Episode 1, Comedy. Oh, it's good to be back. And as always, it is on with the show! It probably would be unfair of me, at the outset, to categorise the majority of comedy as unfunny. But then, like I said to Stephen Hawkins after his doctor sentenced him to the electric chair, Stephen, life just isn't fair. And so, yes, as usual, I am to be the maverick who's willing to say it. Comedy comedians, and especially lady comedians, are just not funny. In fact, they're often the very opposite. The so-called jokes are tiresome, the platforms never hard enough, and as for funny wigs and comde glasses, well... I've seen funnier car wrecks on the A11 as I slow the car to an almost stop to get a good look. So, look, this episode is going to be an interesting one, and I relish the challenge. Incidentally, I often took an aggressively honest tone with Hawkins. I'm certain he found it refreshing, and more to the point, he couldn't have done anything about it if he didn't. And in many ways, that was wonderfully liberating for me. Once, one of my main gripes with him, uh, if you'll permit me, was of his bookwormishness. I often told Stephen that he should knock the whole intelligence thing on the head. It smacked of arrogance, and he wouldn't win any friends by being such a know-it-all clever clogs all the time. It's like I said to him, Stephen, it, it takes a certain kind of narcissism for someone to think they're the smartest person in the room, but they still haven't learned to walk by age 50. Then again, he is one of the all-time great comedy writers, so it's apt he should feature in this first exquisite opening. Uh, When I first read A Brief History of Time, for instance, I mean, I laughed for days. (laughs) I gave myself eight hernias. The doctor said he'd never seen anything like it, and he worked in the hemorrhoids department. But Stephen's book... Nearly every line is side-splittingly funny. If he's not talking about natural gases and mooning, then he's describing how black holes gobble up stars. <laughs> Quite the metaphor for the Hollywood homosexual scene of the 1980s, I must say. I mean, you had to read a hell of a lot into it, and to what he was going on about, all this rambling. But, you know, when you got there, it was such larks. Oh, and... And then, of course, there was all this sci fi business, you know, the sun. Sorry, <laughs> a so called ball of fire that provides light and heat to the earth. <laughs> that, oh, what's the word he uses? Like, photosynthesizes plants, allowing us to breathe through plants. I, I, honestly, I don't know how he came up with it. Stephen Hawking, as I used to say to him, you're more like Stephen Bloody King. <laughs> I'm laughing now. That's wonderful. Enchanting. And um and completely mental. I once said to Stephen, Professor Brian Crox's uh, nephew's bar mitzvah, um, and where is this so, so-called so son you speak of, Stephen? And he gave a very thorough answer. Uh, but no, I can't remember it. I, I don't think I even registered it at the time. I was... I was too uh, too busy laughing at that funny voice his little Game Boy machine uh, made for him. Uh, you may have seen it. He, he carried it with him all the time. Uh, very much the uh, Alexa of its day. Uh, and whilst he spoke through it, he could uh, also organise his emails through it, surf the internet, access the CCTV cameras he had put in his uh, maid's shower quarters, and, uh, and I think contact the debt. Uh, I'd have to check that last one. Um, No, 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 he did. No, no, he did. No, he could. He could contact the dead. Yeah, I I, I recall. Uh, Very advanced, but like I say, nowhere near the Alexa today. Uh, Who can tell you how close the nearest hunky mare escort is to you in proximity? As well as a list of their do's and don'ts and the uh, accompanying fees. Um, (coughs) I'm told. Bless Stephen, though. He did very sadly pass as we all do, but he kept up the ruse until the very end. God love him. Yes, Stephen, the universe is expanding. Yes, Stephen, we live on a planet that is spinning. Yes, Stephen, I can call you a reinforced cab. <laughs> it was a of stuff. And I'm still perplexed by the title of the book, though. I'm yet to know what the popular seasoning has to do with it all. There's not a stitch of cooking or herbaceous gardening in the tome. But uh, back to the matter at hand, comedy. So where does comedy start? Well, the uh, simple answer is that we uh, don't know. It's also the quick answer, uh, mainly because we haven't looked. Uh, I'm talking about Sean and I. Uh, our internet's been on the blink and... and uh, I'm no good at fixing things like that. At 84, for God's sake, the only whiffy I'm used to is the whiffy smell that comes off my farts. Oh, I do (laughs) apologise. Seems only the mere mention begets a potent gust these days. Once again, I must Mm apologise. Oh, and there again. Anyway, I was fortunate to take my monthly call from Les Dennis only Tother today, day, and he told me that comedy started a long, long time ago. And though he is liable to lie to me or tell me what he thinks I want to hear, especially when he's short of 50 quid, uh, on this occasion I actually do believe him. Les takes a great interest in comedy and has tried for decades to prove himself as a comedian. And whilst he's never quite mastered getting the audience to laugh at his jokes rather than, you know, directly at him, he's considered by many an authority on the matter. Um, well, well, not really, but, uh, come on, give the guy a fucking break. So, yes, where and how comedy begins is a mystery, but let us assume that something happened... Somebody found it funny and laughed, and the wanted enchantment of the moment sparked the creation of one of the most popular genres in human history. Now, before we go into the intricacies of the genre in the theatre and on screen, uh, we must look at the two forms in which comedy materialises. That would be how it is encouraged and prepared for, and, of course, the accompanying result of that encouragement. In other words, the action and the reaction. Simply put, the joke and the laughter. Laughter is a curious thing and should be dealt with first. The Oxford English Dictionary defines laughter as a physical reaction in humans consisting, usually, of rhythmical, often audible contractions of the diaphragm and other parts of the respiratory system, resulting most commonly in the forms of he-he or ha-ha, and I think they're pretty much spot on with this. Though I would add that it can sometimes take other forms, such as, uh, well, screaming gasping, uncontrollable, shuddering, hissing, passing out, incessant nodding, saying yes over and over again, clapping, rubbing one's belly, turning purple or green or yellow, uh, only that's jaundice to strike that last one, violent choking, coughing blood, eye rolling, belly button amputation, and as in my case, whenever I watch Jim Carrey in anything, heavy and ceaseless soiling. Oh, that man. He really is shit-your-pants funny. It's not really understood why we laugh. According to scientists, it's involuntary, uh, but according to my great-grandmother, it was the devil. So, you know, with such an array of opposing views, it's hard to settle on who is right. All I do know is you can't officially call something comic or of comedy without it. I think it's important to say that there should be a mixture of symptoms, though, not just one. I once assumed John Cleese was laughing when we watched The Life of Brian together in his basement. Turns out he really was just choking, and as he said to me after, I wouldn't be laughing when Idol was on screen, or Palin. Bunch of wankers. He doesn't mince his words, John, and if he did, he'd just make big word balls out of the mince and fling them at people he hates. So at laughter, yes, you know, it goes hand in hand with comedy, but to guess it, we must look to the bringers of it and study the art of the joke. It would be remiss of me here to try to teach you little cherries listening how to tell a joke, mainly because I, I do it in a later section and bloody good it is too. Now, a good use of time here would be to go over some of the more popular jokes to give you an impression of the sort of thing we're talking about when we mean comedy. So, here are my top 10 joke archetypes. Do get a pen and paper and take some notes, because, you know, this sort of shit is gold. Number 1. The Christmas Cracker. Invariably a collection of dad jokes, often involving puns, the Christmas Cracker is what is termed in the business as a harmless bit of stuff. Oh, it'll tickle the balls of your father and grandfather as they chomp on their turkey, and your mother and grandmother won't understand it, and you'll sigh at the pedestrian nature of it. But the point is, it has brought us together, and saved you from more Christmas arguments, or in some sad cases, some quite serious domestic abuse. Number 2. English, Irishman, Scotsman Whilst these jokes get a bad rap for essentially propagating the stereotypes that Englishmen are sensible in situations, Scotsmen are roguish and Irishmen are plain stupid, one cannot argue that there is always a grain of truth to them. One thinks of the joke where the three of them are in the desert starving and deciding how to divide up a camel. And the Englishman suggests football teams and says that he supports Liverpool, so he should get the liver. And the Scotsman supports Tottenham Hotspur, who play at White Hart Lane, so he should have the heart. Meantime, the Irishman looks sheepish and says he's happy to pass on the food. When asked why, he admits he supports Arsenal. And therefore, by proxy, he would be eating the arsehole. I mean, it's terrifically funny stuff. And so typical, it's hard to argue with it. Um, But I mean, if you tell that in Dublin, they'll fucking lynch you. Number three. Mother-in-law jokes. Made popular by fat racist comics of the 1970s and the 1980s, mother-in-law jokes typically take aim at, you guess it, the mother-in-law. It's tempting to suggest the jokes are unfair and crude representations, but if you've ever been married to a female human, then you know that they're absolutely bang on. It's not like in the English and Irishman and Scotsman where there's a grain of truth. They are nearly all completely and utterly true, these jokes, because mother-in-laws themselves are are hideous. I mean, my my mother-in-law, when I was married to a female human, uh, she was a real horror. She was wrinkled as an old prune and twice as smelly. D. Dead baby jokes. I find dead baby jokes most distasteful, but they make the top ten due to their prominence in the modern popular culture. The central premise is to pose a question to the joke recipient, and then reply with a heinous answer involving dead babies. As thus, how do you get a hundred babies into a bucket? A blender. How do you get them out? Doritos. I mean, it's most disagreeable. I can't even bear to say it. What's brown and gurgles? A baby in a casserole. Do you know what I mean? It's just disgusting. What you call a dead baby pinned to a wall? Art. Can you believe that people would actually tell these... What did the the blind baby get for Christmas? Cancer. I mean, what you call a dead baby with no eyes, no ears, no legs, no arms in the middle of the ocean? Fact, Number five. What's slash and jokes? What's brown and sticky? A stick. You get the idea. Bloody rubbish, those. Number six. Chicken crossing the road. This zoological jest is just another manifestation of the philosophical conundrum of what came first, the chicken or the road. In each scenario, an unsuspecting piece of poultry is tasked with crossing a busy thoroughfare, the reasoning of which is put to the recipient. What possibly could cause a chicken to do such a thing? Uh, The joke's answer is often less about comedy and more about calling attention to humans' own existential crisis. Uh, so why are we here? Why do we do the things that we do? Uh, why does the chicken cross the road? It's, it's, it's probably the most powerful of all the so-called jokes on this list. Uh, why did the chicken cross the road? Um, well, well, perhaps just to get to the other side. Christ alive. I think, um, I need to call my brother. Number 7. Doctor Doctor Made popular in the Middle Ages, the Doctor Doctor joke most frequently satirises the incompetency and general hellishness of the GP system. As in real life, but with some exaggerations, the Doctors are depicted as uncaring, stupid, arrogant, and in many cases just a little bit pervy. I tried to get an opinion from my own doctor, a one-Dr. A.H. Grimwig, on the joke style. I wanted to know know, whether he found them offensive, but his PA told me that he wasn't available for appointments for eight weeks, which rather proves my point about the system and, indeed, its occupants. That it and they are shit. Number eight, your mum. Mighty similar to the mother-in-law jokes, these absolute zingers are in many ways a development, and extension of that central comic premise that women, and especially women who have bore offspring, are deserving of society's chastisement and further ritualistic humiliation. Your mum is the pubescent boy's new full stop. Ask them, for instance, what music they're into. Your mum. Ask them who the president of the United States is. Your mum. Ask them if they're looking for a punch by ignoring your questions. And you guessed it, your mum. (laughs) It's hilarious. Incidentally, uh, I never punched him. He ran into my hand. A knife. Very careless. Number nine. Practical jokes. These are the personal favourites of Sean and I. And you only need to ask our various friends and family at Christmas. Sean and I are always invited over to Julius, uh, my older brother's chateau on the island of Mull, for uh, Boxing Day. where We essentially do a second Christmas Day of eating, opening presents and arguing. Uh, Sean and I always play a practical joke on my nieces and nephews and it really is a highlight of our, our seasonal holiday. Uh, we have had to get creative as, as they get older because they sort of wise up, you know, as, as every year gets going first year we told them they weren't receiving anything and of course pulled out all the presents at the last minute uh when they expected the same the second year we really didn't get them anything which was absolutely hilarious to see their faces (laughs) and then one of them cried uh and then the year after we went back to saying we hadn't but then pulled out these huge boxes and they were so overjoyed Uh, until they opened them and each box was full of 240 spiders of various shapes, sizes and danger. I can't recommend practical jokes enough, especially if you're having a bad day. Pop salt in somebody's coffee, stamp on somebody's reading glasses, cut the brakes on your boss's car and watch the chaos ensue. Absolutely brilliant. Number 10. Knock, knock. The knock-knock joke really is the king of jokes, and I can hardly forbear describing it, in case I I laugh so hard I, am well, you know the rest. The central premise is of a mysterious person who comes to the door of the person you're telling the joke to. There is a rappity-rap-rap-rap rap on the door, and then the mystery person is revealed through clever wordplay. Uh, as, as thus, knock-knock, uh, who is there? Joan, Joan who? Joan of Arc. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> Imagine that. Uh, Joan of Arc stood uh, at your door. <laughs> hilarious. All, all all burnt up, no doubt. <laughs> Uh, the the comedy of the situation in, in these uh, rapidity rap jokes is is in the lunacy of the person or or the thing at your door. Uh, as thus, uh, knock knock, who's there? Mary, Mary who? Mary, the Queen of the Scots, the Mary Queen of Scots. <laughs> I mean, I'm crying with the laughter here. Priceless. Of course, sometimes they even incorporate the who to to add to the wordplay. As thus, knock knock. Who's there? Doctor. Doctor Who. Yes, that's right. (laughs) You're listening to Talking Seattle, the only podcast on Earth about Seattle. Next up, we'll be asking a series of questions relating to the topic of this specific podcast, because if we answered any other questions, like what is the state capital of Kansas, it's Topeka, then that would be irrelevant and boring to listen to. No, we'll be asking the important questions, like... Comedy. What's that got to do with theatre? Comedy. Will they ever use it in films? They say laughter is infectious. Well, if that's true, can it kill me? If it can, should I try to kill it first? What if it resurrects and wants to take revenge? Should I hide from it or try to kill it again? By magical means. If I choose to hide, does that make me a coward if I do? I'll be answering some of these questions and ignoring some of the others. Mostly the last few. Sean was really struggling this week, so I do apologise. But not before we have a word from this week's sponsors. Oh, Johnny, I don't know which one to choose, do you? No, Margaret. It's terribly difficult. But aren't we so lucky to be here at Royal Ascot, enjoying Ladies' Day? Yes, all next week it's Ladies' Day at Royal Ascot. So put on your lovely hat, put on your lovely shoes, and bring yourself down to look at some fine beasts. You'll have everything you could ever have dreamed of. We start the afternoon with a caviar luncheon. Followed by croquet before the horses come round the paddock. If grandma's lucky, one of those big stallions will rub up against her and remind her of yesteryear. Then it's off to the races and down in the mud with the commoners as we go to see which horses cross the line first. And all of your favourite working class Irish bookies are there. Like this one, Mickey, who's going to give us his tips for tomorrow, ladies. What do you think, Mickey? Who's going to win? Well, I'm with you all the answers. But the first one will come in with the second, and then after that you will think the middle of the first and the second and the and the biases. If only the thing we thought, and then you'll only come the latest day you'll make it. And after that you, you, you will be a fine one to tell yourself after that. Oh, I can't wait. Well, you'll be afraid of wait until the weddings, and I'll tell you nothing more one You'll buy a fine pair of legs and all the things. And all the stallions the mares and all the Dublin and the double, double And you'll be fine just about a little about. And so, your final tip is? Gonna win Ladies' Day, 4 to 1, in the 450! Join us for Ladies' Day at Royal Ascot. I've got my hat. Have you? Yes. Royal Ascot sponsors Talking Theatre. The whole child the the chases, and the only one jump the German sponsors to the The only one and the only one in the world that that does it at the theatre on the peggy snow. Funnily enough, it was noble cows who first insisted I see a doctor about a lump I found in my left testicle and that since tonight. Uh, a production of his musical *Sailor* Way. I was playing at the Savoy at the time, and I was in attendance every night for four months. He very shrewdly picked up on it, and when he inquired, I told him about the lump and that I had also heard it on good authority, that laughter was the best medicine. And so by being attended so frequently, the audience's laughter might zap the cancer like a spot of radiotherapy, uh, only with less side effects and, and a great deal more fun, it, it has to be said. He told me, though, that what I'd been told was more a pithy turn of phrase than certifiable treatment and said that I'd likely given the cancer ample time to take my glands whole and that even as I was stood there with him, it was most likely the malignant disease was moving through my endocrine system uh, to the brain, where it would surely finish its journey and finish me off. He had such a way with words. I I think if he'd put it any other way, I'd have failed to see the funny side. That wasn't my first encounter with Noel, of course. I was very used to tripping over his legs in public toilets. Uh, at least I think that was him. Uh, you can't always tell. I'm tempted to say it was a, a different time, but I'm I'm not sure. We've outgrown such degradations. So that's a typo. That should say decadences. Perhaps it's dalliances. Mm. Anyway, uh, why am I talking about Noel? Well, if (laughs) you're really asking me that, then you ought to take your headphones out and put your head in a blender, because I don't know what use that brain is of yours. Noel Coward is the first known playwright who used comedy in the theatre. And by that, I mean he is the first playwright to get laughs in a theatre. And I mean real laughs. Not the sort of, you know, it's a clever pun and I get it. Aren't I the playwright smart? Let's all laugh at how clever we are. Not that sort of terrible theatre. No, not that. Real, genuine laughter at the action that is taking place on the stage. Now... I know some people are going to write in and say, well, Shakespeare wrote Condas, but uh, those would probably be academic scholars who, as we all know, never actually know anything about what they write because they spend all their time just writing down their opinions on the thing. Uh, no, no, no. Shakespeare scholar has ever seen a Shakespeare play. Uh, just as nobody who has ever built a rocket has been to space. Uh, different people, different things. Um, nor any midwife ever ever given birth to a baby. Uh, it's just the way that, that things are in this in this weird and wonderful world of academia. Uh, of course, people may also cite. Oscar Wilde as well, but I'm afraid his conviction for very blatant and aggressive homosexuality, when it was against the law, renders him a criminal. And uh, I have a policy of not acknowledging those with any kind of record uh, on this podcast, uh, criminal or otherwise. The law is the law, Oscar. So, yes, those two aside, Noel was the first and still is, to my knowledge, the only writer to think, hmm... "'You know that laughing that we do after we've heard a joke, "'or when something happens to somebody that we don't like, "'or when we're tickled or touched in the cheeky and the naughty spots? "'I wondered if we might do that in a theatre. "'And you know what? "'You may very well be surprised to hear that he bloody well did. "'We know, though, that this was most likely "'due to there having been two large and nasty wars.' And people were sick of crying, so it, it's no surprise that laughter took off uh, as it did. Uh, alas, though, as we move through to the 1970s, the comedy play in the theatre dries up uh, almost entirely, especially as Noel, bless him, perishes, as we all do. Today, you'd be as likely to find laughter in a theatre as you would a, a good director. It just it doesn't exist anymore. As I've mentioned frequently before, anything that is listed as comedy won't be funny. That's a given. You must write that down. Will it change? Will it change? Mm, Probably not. Do we care? Certainly not. Let's reserve laughter for the dinner table, special occasions, and also for those who can afford it. The rich. But what of comedy in film, Holworth? I hear you cry. Again, it's hard to come by, but there are some trailblazers who have defined the genre and continue to stick it to the man, as you might say. Uh, One thinks of the great Eddie Murphy, who proves that comedy is best achieved when one actor plays as many of the characters as possible. In turn, making each and every one of those characters as easy to understand as possible. It's very much about making the performance as big and uh, one-dimensional uh, as you possibly can. Doing a funny voice, say, or wearing a funny wig, or, or, or doing a, a, a funny voice. Um, wearing funny glasses, uh, do, or doing a funny voice, as he so often does. Uh, wearing a fat suit. Um, and he also does a funny voice. That's absolutely hilarious. If you can make it as simple and as broad as possible, then it gets to what comedy should really be about, and that's money. I know I'm somewhat biased, as Eddie is a godchild of mine, but uh, I hope it'll swage anyone's misgivings to know that, whilst I think he is an overachiever in his field, I loathe the man personally. He really is abominable. And what he did to Melanie B from the Spicers Girls is an absolute disgrace. The lady is an angel. She's a bit much for some people, but she's an angel nevertheless. I've also cut him out of my will almost altogether. The only thing I've left him is uh, my set of real fur coats, and only because I know he's allergic to them. Uh, you can't get a cat, horse or sheep near Eddie Murphy, otherwise he comes out in a rash and can barely breathe. Uh, Like I say, I've left every single one of them to him. And then there's dear Robin. I mean, it's impossible to mention comedy films without mentioning Robin. Robin Williams is just special. I've known him for decades now, and I I count him as one of my closest and dearest friends. Uh, And boy, haven't we had some good times. (laughs) He and I used to have cocaine races at rap parties. Uh, which was all the rage in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, especially at Madonna's, it was first to get a severe nosebleed or sapphiresagia, uh, whichever came first. Such fun. And I'll never forget, we were drinking one night, and I stayed up until 8am, and uh, just the two of us, and as we finished the bottle of whiskey, it must have been our third or fourth, you can't say. Anyway, I started unwrapping another bottle, and Robin got up and he said to me, Holworth, I never thought I'd say this. But good night. <laughs> and he made for Bedfordshire, which was um, where he had a hotel room and, and was staying. We had so many great times. And uh, then I lost touch with him when he did Mrs. Doubtfire, uh, mainly because I, I've never really approved of cross dressing. I find character comedy also tiresome at the best of times. And a man running around as a woman is just unseemly. Uh, it's not just unseemly, actually, it's downright obscene. It's disgusting. I told Robin as much at the 1996 Golden Globes, and he replied by telling me that I could have his Golden Globe, as long as I shoved it so far up my own ass I could lodge it in my throat and grab it from my own godbox. Since then, like I say, it's been very little contact. Well, contact B- at, it, what's that? Was because because what? Sorry. Robin, Robin Williams. Robin Williams. Yeah, he died, yeah. <laughs> when? Jesus Christ! Yeah. Um, are you sure you didn't? No. Are you okay? Oh, I do apologise about that, sir. Uh, dreadful news. Um. Then again, I I suppose uh, we all perish. We'll need to clean that up. Before I move on to the final section of this most insightful of ear lectures, I must acknowledge my own foray into the world of comedy. Uh, I was very pleased to play the Godalming British Legion in 2007 when I tried my hand at stand-up comedy. Now, I've always been very naturally funny. I know that won't surprise any of you little kumquats out there to hear it. Even today, if I'm walking down the street, people will see me and uh, they'll just burst out laughing. I mean, I I exude the very essence of humour. Indeed, the last time I spoke to my daughter, she told me that I was a complete joke. Before we ended the conversation, which I think is one of the greatest compliments, actually, a person doing comedy it can be to be a complete joke—you know, starts, middle, and finishes. That's fantastic. Uh, in other words, I'm just a very terribly funny person. I don't mind telling you. Uh, but but why stand up? Well, I, I presented an award at the British Comedy Awards. I was most embarrassed to attend, actually. It's widely considered the stupidest award ceremony in the canon. But they offered me the most wonderful tray of delicious meats and £2,000 in real money, so I thought, fuck it. Anyway, whilst I was there, I I bumped into Peter Kay, who uh, mentioned off-the-cuff that he thought stand-up was the hardest performance ethic going. I was taken aback and more than a little offended at this and told him that nothing compares to the inner strength needed for a Prospero or a Leah, and that he'd struggled just negotiating a stage gun with the weight he was carrying, let alone climbing the back stairs with the body of his dead child in his hands for the finale. I mean, he didn't take to this, and he called me a name which I won't repeat, but let's just say it rhymed with clucking runt. And what then ensued was a serious exchange of thoughts, words, and occasionally blows. It got so heated that Lee Evans had to step in to calm us down. Anyway, it ended up with Peter challenging me to try stand-up to prove I could do it, whilst I challenged Kay to a single performance of Hamlet with him in the titular role. He, of course, began laughing at the word titular, and I explained what it meant. He then tried to tell me that he was making a pun. I said, no, I know, I know it's a pun. I know it's a pun. It's just a stupid one, and I just want you to know exactly what the word means, and that a pun at this moment is misguided, and that I don't find you funny. Then I called him a name, which I won't repeat, but let's just say that it rhymed with Shatfit. After we went back and forth with a few more names such as wacking Fanker, Hick Dead, Bat Fastered, and Told Wat. Both of us then agreed to let things go, and we went our separate ways. Well, the occasion was organised, and I found myself giving an hour-long set at the British Legion only a few weeks later. Uh, Under the instruction of Ken Dodd, the most important thing for me to do, and these were his exact words, was to bring the house down. Uh, As such, I planned for a series of mother-in-law jokes before organising a practical joke which involved the entire venue being brought down using a series of light explosives. The night turned out to be a mixed bag, (laughs) admittedly. Whilst the jokes themselves went well, the end was less of a success. I'm not sure anyone in the audience really found being pulled from a collapsed building by the local fire brigade very funny. When I told Doddy his practical joke was little off, he said it was a turn of phrase and he hadn't meant it literally, to which I said, ''Well, that's very convenient for you, but I really think you ought to tell the people at the Royal Marsden who would have to contemplate the rest of their lives without one, two, three, four, or in some cases, five of their limbs.'' I said to him, ''Doddy, you owe them a fucking apology, mate.'' Kay, meanwhile, performed Hamlet at the Barbican for one night only, and to be fair to him, I thought his performance was fairly accomplished. That might just be in comparison to his comedy, though, which I've never understood, mainly because he and nearly everything that he talks about is north of the M25, and I have no understanding, and hope never really to understand, what is in the upper regions. I think what I learnt, sir, was that comedy is really tremendously easy, but not particularly important. I wouldn't bother with it, personally. Laughing takes up a lot of energy as well, energy which could otherwise be used doing things like charity or war games. No, as a genre, it's a dead duck, I'm afraid—a little, tiny, dead duck, commander. And so, as always, to correspondence. Our final section is with the weird and wonderful. And we'll delve into your correspondence, which is always hefty, and I must say it gets more curious as time goes on. We do only ever answer one letter, as par for course, but we thank you for the gifts. Oh, we thank you for the gifts, including this week, three bags of Asda shopping left on my neighbour's porch. (laughs) There was a little note with it. Uh, I have mean, not seen or heard from Marjorie in weeks, which is uh, unusual, my neighbour my neighbour on the left. Uh, but then what can one expect from a 98-year-old? Um, I thought better than to knock and check. Uh, but I think it's safe to assume that the items were for us. This week, Karen Garam, 52, from Durham, writes in with a very curious question. Indeed, hello, Karen. She writes, Dear Sir was Smooth, can I start by wishing you a Merry Christmas? and a happy new year, and thank you for the first series of Talking Theatre, the only podcast on earth about the theatre, which I've found to be most informative. I've always thought show business was a fickle industry full of loony lefties and downright bastards whose programmes I like, but whose lifestyle choices I don't. You can imagine, then, how pleased I was to find my assumptions well-founded and confirmed in your various stories and general insertions. When I received your advertisement email telling me the first episode of Series 2 was on comedy, I was nervous and had misgivings, which compelled me to pick up the ballpoint and to write to you. You see, I don't know about you, but I feel like you can't laugh at anything these days. It's as if we've all lost our sense of humour. According to the woke generation, it seems as though one isn't supposed to laugh at Delboy's Boy's cockney French accent anymore, or David Walliam's hilarious portrayal of a fat black woman, or misguided transsexual. Soon we won't even be able to laugh at Mr Bean's autism. What is the world coming to, Holworth? Can we not take a joke anymore? Yesterday, an old man fell over outside the shop I was in, and I can't tell you how funny it was. It sounds it. It really does, Karen. "'Of course, one tries to stifle one's laughter, "'especially when he's bleeding out so profusely "'and you worry he might not make it. "'But that doesn't stop the fact "'we all find the odd fall funny, fatal or not. "'So I have no question, but more a request. "'Will you stand up for the little people, Holworth? "'Will you decry this PC nonsense once and for all? "'I fear if people like you and I don't speak out, "'then we'll never laugh again.' If you think I'm being racist, homophobic, transphobic, sexist, or racist, then please know that I have a black trans female friend who is 80. It's time to let people have their own thoughts and do their own things. Whatever happened to civil liberties. At the same time, though, I do think people singing about racial politics on reality television is dangerous and it's not the right place to do it. And queer drag dancing on primetime TV is also wrong and my grandchildren shouldn't be subjected to it. It's time, as I've said before, Holworth, to stand up for the little people. With warmest regards, and in Jesus' name, Karen Gammon, 52, who is a paediatric nurse from Durham. Oh, Karen, thank you for your beautifully put correspondence and, of course, the Kitchen 1986 postcard with a picture of the cast of Dallas on it, which you have written on. Thank you also for the T-shirt. I will decline your request to wear it for a picture. Whilst I encourage you to fight for free speech and would always defend your right to it, the slogan on the T-shirt isn't an opinion I hold. And whilst they are called that in their home country, I think over here you're flying rather close to the sun on that one, Karen. Now, to your central question, have we lost our sense of humour? Oh, Karen, I think we have. I think you might be a little bit right. I think it's got so bad they ought to be looking into whether there's some kind of pandemic happening with it. I've suggested calling it syndrome, uh, loss of sense of humour syndrome because it, it seems to be so rife it simply must be recognised. And what can be worse than losing your sense of humour, Karen, I ask you? Losing your keys? Losing your mind? A child? No, none of these compare. Losing your sense of humour. I mean, they pale in comparison to the loss of the gift of laughter. And... It is stifling creativity. We know that too. Uh, My godson Ben Stiller does a wonderful routine for us every time I go to his mansion in the Beverly Hills for Thanksgiving. He calls it The Chinaman Goes Shopping. And, oh, it is absolutely roll on the floor and kick the dog funny. But could he do it on YouTube? Could he do it in a movie? I severely doubt it. People call it bad taste humour. I mean I'm not sure I can recognise bad taste humour if you dress it in a coat made of dead babies and had it singing a racist football chant to me. But I think Cannon Gamon I think Cannon Gamon it's gone further. This is about a general gagging of people, is it not? Is it not? And not in a good unusual way like, you know, consensual copulation or the torture of terrorists. No, this is a generation of troublemakers, and it must be said, trying to deny our past and stifle our civil liberties. They've even started pulling down statues now, it seems. I mean, a perfectly good bronze statue. Uh, Yes, Okay. fine. The man was involved in a little bit of slavery, and, uh, you know, a lot of untold misery. Yes, he was. I'll give you that. But he also helped people. Mainly the people who benefited from the slavery. But, you know, a gesture is a gesture. I mean, altruism is altruism. I was very shocked myself. When they pulled down Sir Jimmy Savile's statue. Again, yes, he was a prolific abuser. Yes, he was. But he did also do a lot of fun runs. A lot of fun runs. Not normal runs, Carol. Not a normal run that like down the road. A fun run. He was a bringer of fun through his running. Raising money for charities as well. Don't forget. I hope they won't be stripping me of my TV Quick Award just because I hit a teenager with my car back in 84. I mean, we've all got a past, Karen. Let us be judged by the good and not the bad. Besides which, it is education, isn't it? I mean, it's not enough to have these things in books for people to readily read or in museums. When was the last time a person read a real book or went to a real museum? Do they even open museums anymore? Museums are just places where librarians retire to homes for the great shushes of the world. Now, we must have these people sculpted to twice or three times their size, made into bronze, gold, iron or stone and erected. In, and I, I do not apologise for that word. Erected in the middle of where they were most influential, good and bad. I mean, I'll go further. I can't understand why they took down the mile-long banners with swastikas on them after the fall of Berlin. If they still hung now, think of the educational benefit. So what if a few people who experienced the horror of war would be continually reminded of it? Isn't that the point? I think education and free speech are more important than these so-called feelings. Think now, think now for a second, of how effective a statue of Myra Hindley would be in Manchester. A reminder to children not to talk to strangers, but also a fitting tribute to all her work as the top seller in the area as an Avon lady. I mean, I could go on, Karen. Sean's actually waving at me and telling me, telling me not he's doing that thing where you... Um you know the sign where you where you cut somebody's head off. You put the, the 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 hand across the neck. You probably can't do that anymore. PC gone mad again, Karen. Probably be, offend people who've been had their heads shot off. Probably turning you turning the grave of Anne Boleyn. And it just gets ridiculously quite right. Anyway, he's doing it quite aggressively now, so I stop. So, so Karen, I'm I, I, listen. I must agree with you, and I hope my agreements goes somewhere to helping your cause both in general society and also in support of your parole hearing and application for clemency, which you include, and I'm happy to sign. Karen, Gummon, From Durham, to you I say, good day. Well, that's all we have time for today. Isn't it so lovely to be back? Uh, next time we'll be looking at comedy's old and bloody sibling tragedy. And I'll be asking the all-important questions like... How much stage bloods is too much stage bloods? Could stage bloods be mistaken for real bloods at a crime scene? And which is better for realistic death? Guns or knives? I think we all know the answer. Guns for speed of death. Knives for maximum impact. That's stage and screen and real life too. You've been listening to Talking Theatre. The only podcast on earth about the theatre. And so to you, I say... Good die.